0: We read earlier a bit from Philippians, don't turn to it now, we're not going to actually be in Philippians, but I want you to try to imagine that you were part of the church in Philippi 2,000 years ago, and you're turning up to church one Sunday, you're going excitedly to meet together, because you've heard that your church has received a letter from the Apostle Paul himself. And it's going to be read to you that evening, or morning, or whenever it is you turn up to church. That's something to look forward to. You're going to hear what the Apostle Paul has to say to you, the church at Philippi. By the way, your name is Euodia. That's your name. And you're amazed as you sit together with your fellow Christians in church, and you hear what Paul wrote about the Lord Jesus humbled and exalted, and wow, you're amazed. And you're moved as you hear, I want to know Christ. And the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, you're moved by Paul's example of devotion and thinking about how that should work out in your life. And then you're shocked and humiliated as you hear, in front of everyone, I plead with you, Odea, oh and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. <laughs> You'd be named in front of everyone, including Syntyche, who's sitting over the other side of the room. And Paul was there in front of everyone, stated the thing that everyone really knew. The two of you aren't getting on, and you're not sorting it out. That must be really embarrassing. Embarrassing not just for you, but for everyone. Why did Paul do it? Because he thought it was worth it. It, Worth it because broken relationships should be mended. Even at the expense of some embarrassment, even if the process, including hearing it in church is painful, he thought this is not an optional extra. It needs to be dealt with. And in saying that, the apostle Paul was following his Lord. Let's turn to the teaching of the Lord Jesus in Matthew 5. Matthew 5 verse 21 to 26. Matthew chapter 5. Verse 21 to 26. In our series going through the Ten Commandments, which we've been doing in home group and now on Sunday evenings, we got to the Sixth Commandment two weeks ago. And we started uh, to look at Matthew chapter 5 and with how Jesus comments on the Sixth Commandment. And my plan is to continue that this evening and then next week move on to the Seventh Commandment. And here Jesus shows us that simple commandment, you shall not murder, that just sounds so simple. We don't even need one evening on it, do we? It relates to this issue that we all will sadly at some point face. I'd imagine everyone at some point faces this issue of mending broken relationships. What to do when someone's got something against you? That's what we're going to be thinking about this evening. And I've got three sections going from explanation to practical outworking of it, practical response in three sections. Here's the first section, getting to the heart of the command. Let's do some thinking about why this is here, what's going on here. I need to remind you, Jesus was not replacing the Sixth Commandment. He was not enlarging the Sixth Commandment. Jesus was recapturing the original intent of the commandment. Why do I claim that? Well, because of what Jesus says back in verse 17. Verse 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law and all the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And wonderfully, he fulfilled them. He lived them out in his life. But that doesn't mean they've gone and don't apply to us anymore. I'm claiming that Jesus wasn't replacing or even enlarging the commandments. He was recapturing the original intent also because of what he said in verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't say unless you're better than the Old Testament and Moses. He says unless you're better than the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees had watered down the commandments, had twisted the commandments. He's saying you've got to be better than that, so let's get back to the original. I'm also claiming this because the Ten Commandments always were a summary, a very small summary of a bigger law. And if you look in the Old Testament law, you'll find that it contains positives as well as negatives. The Ten Commandments are mainly negative, aren't they? It'd be interesting sometimes to think about why are they mainly negative. You shall not murder. Negative. But then you look in the rest of the Old Testament law and you find that even that includes a positive, you should take action to take care of even the health of your neighbor. You should take positive action to protect a neighbour's health. That's very relevant in the COVID situation. That's that's why most of us are wearing masks. Not, Not me, I'm allowed to not do so. Or you also find you shall not murder. Look at the rest of the Old Testament law. And it shows God's care about the heart, not just action. Love your neighbor wasn't invented by Jesus. It's there in Leviticus. Some people will quibble and say, yes, well, the son of God was responsible for Leviticus. Yes, you're right. But my point is, don't have a low view of Old Testament spirituality. There is just all simplistic don'ts and Jesus adds the real spiritual stuff. No. And so Jesus says, obeying the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, includes restraining sinful anger. That's verse 21 and 22. And we heard that two weeks ago. And Jesus says, obeying the sixth commandment includes mending broken relationships. That's verse 23 to 26. And that's what we're hearing now, this evening. So. I need a bit more explanation, though, before we can get on to how we practically respond to it. Because you could legitimately wonder this. How does Jesus get from you shall not murder to mending broken relationships? What's the link? It seems a bit of a big jump. Let's try to make the link between one and the other. Murder is the ultimate breaking of a relationship. Murder is the ultimate getting someone out of your life. Now, the Pharisees, they were only interested if you did it, if you actually took the action and murdered someone. Jesus has said in verse 20, you need a better righteousness than the Pharisees. You need something better than just avoiding doing it. God is interested in more than if you do the act of murder. He's interested in what's going on in your heart. He's interested in the attitudes that may be behind the action or might not even manage to get to the action. It should be fairly obvious to us that, that even if you don't actually get to the action, well, the heart can still be wrong. I put a radio on on the way home, well, actually from visiting Francis. I was driving in the car, put the radio on. And it was this thing called Stacey Dooley Investigates. I don't know much about this Stacey Dooley. But anyway, it was very interesting. She was talking to women on death row in the USA. And there was this woman there, and she'd never struck someone in anger. Well, as far as I know. Uh, She hadn't ever picked up a weapon. What was she doing on death row? Why was she in prison? She wanted to be rid of her husband. She didn't kill him, but she got someone else to do it. She... um, I think it was a friend at church. It was a very interesting programme. A friend at church told her how to get hold of a hitman. Well, what sort of church was this, I wonder? A friend at church told her how to get a hitman. And she got the hitman, and he killed her husband for her. Now, she's obviously, I I think we'd all agree, she's guilty before the law. She didn't pull the trigger, but she wanted rid of her husband. What if she hadn't managed to hire the hitman? You know, I wouldn't know how to hire a hitman, would you? (laughs) Well... Maybe best not to volunteer that information. But even if she hadn't known how to do it and she couldn't manage to, she's still guilty before God's law. Because the heart attitude was, I want rid of my husband. And I, I think we have to honestly say that attitude's been there in many people, hasn't it, who've never pulled the trigger or hired the hitman. The hard attitude that breaks the sixth commandment is, I want that person out of my life. It would be better if I were rid of them. The heart attitude that keeps the sixth commandment is the opposite. Fairly obvious, isn't it? I want that person in my life. I want us to be reconciled. I want to mend the relationship that's broken. I want to bridge the gap that's opened up between us. And so Jesus obviously quite rightly says the sixth commandment Obeying, it includes mending broken relationships. Let's move on to how. See what Jesus has to say about how we mend broken relationships. So we're going to move from getting to the heart of the command to giving gospel priorities. Giving gospel priorities. Let's read verse 23 and 24 again. Verse 23. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gifts. Imagine you were at the temple. Hard to imagine that building rather different from this covered in ornate decoration. And there you are. You're about to give an offering. Maybe you've got some first fruits from your fields that you've picked. And you're going to make this offering. And you're about to make this offering. And you remember, there's someone who's avoiding me. We haven't talked for ages because there's been a bust up and we never sorted it out. We're not on friendly terms because he thinks I've wronged him. And Jesus says, leave your gift there. Don't make your gift yet. Don't say, oh, well, it'll only take 15 minutes. To, I don't know how long it took to make those gifts. Let's just quickly. Do. No, he says, no, no, leave it. Leave it there. Go and sort it out with him and then come back and make your offering. Now, simple, obvious question. Why does Jesus say, leave your gift? Why does he say, leave your gift and go and sort it out? Why can't you make your gift and then go and sort it out? What do you reckon? Why does he say, leave the gift, go and sort it out? What do you think? Okay, right. So there's going to be some sort of problem with the gift, possibly. Yeah, good. We'll come back to that. I think that's the less obvious one. We'll come back to that. I think there's a more obvious one. What is is Jesus getting at here? Urgency. Thank you, urgency. It's basically a way of showing how urgent this is. We'll come back to your one in a minute, Chris. Um, He's showing the urgency. Of it, He's showing just how high a priority he gives to mend relationships, be in right relationship with others. I wonder, have you ever experienced someone walking out during preaching? Yeah, I have. It's funny, actually, I was going to preach this a fortnight ago, but we didn't get onto it. And a fortnight ago, someone did walk out in the preaching because they weren't feeling too well. But when people do, and sometimes the way people walk out, you wonder, oh dear, what did I say? Quite what's oh dear, what's the problem? A little off putting. Um, if anyone needs to go later. <laughs> but here's a good case. Where here's a case where it would be good if you got up and walked out now. If you remember there's someone who's got something against you. It'd be good to get up and walk out and sort it out. Oh, can you imagine now getting up and walking out? Now it would be embarrassing, wouldn't it? Because everyone will be thinking, oh, I wonder who the fallout's been with. Oh, I wonder who he or she is going to talk to. How embarrassing. But seeking reconciliation involves humbling ourselves. Whether you're to walk out now and do it or do it when no one else knows, it's going to involve some humbling yourself. Now you say, surely, you could wait until after the service, couldn't you? But Jesus says, leave everything and do it now. In other words, he's he's emphasizing it's the extraordinarily high value he puts on reconciliation. Another question for you, what hint is in verse 23 at why it's so important to be reconciled? It's just a hint in verse 23 itself as to why there's such a high value given to that reconciliation. It's a word Jesus chooses to use in verse 23. I could help you out with this. It's who you are to be reconciled with. Your brother and brother speaks of family. That's the hint. He's Saying this is a family matter. When Jesus was speaking, the people of God were Israel. And Israel was a big family, an ethnic group. From Pentecost onwards, the people of God were the church. And the church is often spoken of as a family. We are often called brothers and sisters because in Christ we have one father. Makes us brothers and sisters. Imagine you sit down to Sunday dinner as a family. And there are two people in your family sitting at that table and they won't speak to each other. And they won't look at each other in the eye. And they won't ask each other to pass the salt. Well, that's that's sad. That's damaging to the family. Well, what about our family meal, the Lord's Supper? Is there anyone present that you're not talking to? Are there people you're avoiding or they're avoiding you? And there you are sitting at the family meal, the Lord's Supper. Well, that's, that's a breach in the family. That's sad. That's damaging. And so Jesus gives this high priority. Now, I was going to ask again, why does Jesus say, leave your gift at the altar? Why doesn't he just say, if it's about urgency, which I think Malcolm's right, it is about urgency primarily. But if it was just that, why didn't he just say, do it as soon as possible? Why does he bring in gifts at the altar? And here I think Chris's answer is right. Because... When we're out of relationship with others and when failing to put it right, it affects our acts of worship. Because of the tendency that we have to think not mending the broken relationship will be all right in the end because look at the good things I do. I must be okay, So it will be all right in the end. Jesus is effectively saying here, don't use religious activity as a cover for not doing what you can and should to mend relationships with others. Far from it covering your failure there, your failure affects your act of worship. And by the way, again, Jesus is not inventing something new. You could look, for example, at Isaiah 1 and see there how. Sins in our relationship with others pollute our acts of worship, far from our acts of worship covering them over. I went to see someone about a broken relationship. I went to see someone to to try to urge him to seek reconciliation with someone he was. There had been a breach with. He didn't want to talk about it. He wanted to talk about his ministry and his preaching and his service in the church. He wanted to talk about the way that people appreciate him. He didn't want to talk about reconciliation with the person he was out of relationship with. Now, I'm sure if, if you asked him, are you justified by your works? He'd say, no, no, of course not. I'm sure if you asked him, is repentance optional and not really necessary? He'd say, no, no, of course not. But we can very easily agree with gospel doctrine. But deep down, maybe even unrecognized by us, there can still be a tendency to trust, I must be okay. Because look, I turn up to church each Sunday. And I actually enjoy singing those hymns. I actually believe these things I hear in the Bible. And look at the good things I do. I must be okay. And so while it would be, it would be better if I sorted that out, in the end it won't matter that I'm not sorting it out. But Jesus says, no. Don't think your religious activity makes up for lack of repentance. Lack of repentance actually pollutes your religious activity. Jesus here is giving such high priority to mending broken relationships. So let's move on again. We've had getting to the heart of the command. That was trying to explain why this is here and how it links to the sixth commandment. We've had giving gospel priorities, how urgent this is. And it's not an optional extra. Uh, But then thirdly, going to be reconciled. Let's think about practical responses. Verse 24, Jesus says four simple words, go and be reconciled. But let's simply step by step try to take through what that would actually involve in practice. Just very simple, step by step, how do you go and be reconciled? Now, I must first say that... um, I need this myself. And I didn't come to these steps by looking back at wonderful things I've done. I thought, oh yeah, that was good. I'll tell them about doing that. And In fact, some of these steps I came to by thinking back and thinking, I didn't do that and I should have done. And I made a mess of that one. So I'm not preaching this as, as a wonderful example. I'm preaching it to myself as well. Verse 24, go and be reconciled. What does it involve? What's the first step. When you've realized or remembered someone is, is actually has something against you, what's the first thing? Well, I reckon the first step is pray. Pray for an opportunity to speak to them. Pray for yourself to, that you would approach it with humility, not with defensiveness. Yeah, really, We really need to pray for that one, don't we? That's hard. Pray for them to react well. And pray that there would be reconciliation and you'd both be brought back into unity. Pray for it. Because there are heart issues here that aren't going to happen without God's work. Pray. But don't just pray. Then what do you do? Verse 24, a very simple thing. What do you do next? Verse 24. Go. Very simple one. but It's a very crucial one. Go. You don't wait for them to come, you go. Do you remember the Northern Ireland peace process? And and the big trouble was, who was going to jump first? Is it the unionists will negotiate with the IRA first, or is it the IRA will give up their guns first? And each side was saying the other one's got to jump first, which obviously means stalemates. And we might have all sorts of opinions about which one's reasonable to expect first, but... We shouldn't get that sort of problem in the church. We should, in a sense, all be trying to jump first, because it says go. Don't wait for them to come to you. Go. Make contact. Face to face, if possible. Go. And then when you go, what do you do? It doesn't say this in verse 24, but here it is fairly common sense, actually. When you go, what do you do? Listen. That's the first thing. They've got something against you. Well, you will have to say something. You'll have to say uh, gently that it looks like you've got something against me. Is there something I've done? And you listen to hear what it is. You don't presume. You don't guess. You don't jump in with both feet because you think it's obvious. You listen. And you check that you've listened and heard it rightly. Pray. Go. Listen. And once you've listened, what do you do? Well, you tell them they've got it all wrong, haven't they? You've got it all wrong. Of course I didn't do that. And anyway, even what I did do, ah, oh, it's, it's really pretty small compared with what you did and how provocative you were. Oh, it's really a pretty tiny reaction, isn't it? Isn't that what you do? Well, no, no, and a thousand times no. Resist the urge to be defensive. Yeah. I'm saying this because I find it in myself. Well, the, res- the urge to be defensive is so strong. Resist the urge to be defensive. And if what you've heard shows you have been in the wrong, even in a tiny way, if it shows you've been in the wrong, ask for forgiveness. I was wrong. Please forgive me. Simple, clear words that show a way that the relationship can and should be mended. Yeah? So much more than a politician's apology that I'm sorry that you're upset. Well, that hasn't admitted anything, has it? It said, I'm sorry that you are upset, not I'm sorry that I got it wrong. I was wrong. Please forgive me. It's both clear and it shows a way for the relationship to be mended. What if you've not been in the wrong? What if it's been a misunderstanding? Well, one thing you can do is show understanding of their hurts. John Piper's a preacher in the USA, and I heard him say something that was that was amazingly open and honest. He said, him and his, him and his wife, um, they've had some stormy times. And he gave an example of, I can't remember it exactly, but there'd been a fallout between him and his wife. And she was upset with something she thought he'd said or done, and he hadn't said or done it. And so, of course, he was talking about how I haven't said that. and No, I didn't mean it the way you think. And no, I didn't do the thing that you And I thought, well, that's quite true, isn't it? Quite right. <laughs> how can she be upset when he didn't do that? And someone pointed out to him, even if the cause isn't real, the hurt is still real. And you've got to try to first take in how your wife is hurt. And you've got to acknowledge that first before you can then try to explain the misunderstanding. And to do it without defensive accusations. So there's still work we can do even when actually you haven't been in the wrong. It's all been a misunderstanding. Pray, go, listen, acknowledge. And ask for forgiveness. And what should happen next? Verse 24, what is Jesus presuming? He says it so simply, go and be reconciled. As if he presumes, you go and, and reconciliation will happen. Well, what does that require? What is Jesus presuming will happen next? You've asked for forgiveness, he's presuming, they will forgive. Otherwise, there won't be a reconciliation. You're presuming that they will forgive. It's presumed here. Now, by the way, Jesus knows it sometimes doesn't happen. But when I say presuming, he's not saying it always happens. He's saying it it ought to happen. That's what ought to go on. It's presumed here. It's taught elsewhere. For example, chapter 6, verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Chapter 6, verse 14. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. It's, it's taught explicitly there. Kerry says she's forgiven Abby. She insists that she's forgiven Abby. but She doesn't talk to her. And she avoids her. And she still chews over in her mind what's Abby did. Well, in that case, Kerry can't pray the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us as we forgive others, because I presume that Kerry doesn't want God's forgiveness to be like her supposed forgiveness. She doesn't want God to not listen to her prayers and hold her at a distance and keep turning over in his mind what she's done. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Jesus here is presumed in verse 24 and is taught explicitly in chapter 6. Uh, it's, it's taught also in chapter 18, by the way. Um, sometime have a read of chapter 18. I'm not going to teach it now, but sometime have a read of chapter 18, verse 15 to the end. And um, well, let me just point out some of the things you'll see that are well worth noticing when you read it sometime. You'll see you must also go and work at it when it's the other way round. They've sinned against you still. Be the first to jump. Go. You'll see in chapter 18 that sometimes it's helpful and sometimes it's even necessary to take someone else along to help in the process. You'll see in chapter 18, Jesus does recognise that sometimes, despite our efforts, reconciliation still doesn't happen. But it doesn't happen when someone fails to repent. And therefore, it gets very serious. And so you also see in chapter 18, sometimes church discipline is necessary when there isn't repentance. We can't just make our own unilateral decision. I'm acting as if that person isn't in the family. They're either in the family and we must be united or they're put out of the family because they're failing to repent. But you can read all that in chapter 18. Pray, go, listen. Acknowledge, forgive, work at reconciliation It's given high priority by Jesus. There's more that could be said, but that's all I'll say tonight on that process of reconciliation. Let's end with this. What does Jesus do to the sixth commandment? Here in Matthew 5, you have the living word explaining the written word. The the Jews called the Ten Commandments the Ten Words, and he explains that sixth word. What does he do with that commandment? Well, he gets to the heart of it. He shows it's not just about murdering, it's also about what's in your heart. Do you value relationships with your Christian brothers and sisters? And so opposite to wanting people out of your life, you want them in your life. You want relationships mended. He gets to the heart of the commandment. He doesn't make repentance optional. Ah, oh, we so often get this one wrong. Our salvation, it doesn't depend on how good our repentance is. You don't get into heaven based on how good your repentance is. It's based on how good Jesus is. We depend on him, but he doesn't make repentance optional. Grace doesn't make repentance optional. Jesus says, if we don't repent of our anger, we're in danger of hell fire. That's verse 22. Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off so you don't go to hell. That's verse 30. Jesus says, if you won't forgive others, God won't forgive you. That's chapter 6, verse 15. You say, Jesus, you need to be taught by Martin Luther. Did you miss out on the Reformation? Jesus, haven't you read Paul's letters? Don't you know about grace? Ah, yes, he does. That grace doesn't make repentance optional. Mending broken relationships is not just a nice optional extra. But Jesus does give forgiveness. He does give forgiveness. Even, think of this, even for a Peter who broke relationship with Jesus, with cursing and swearing. I don't know that man. I have nothing to do with that man. There was forgiveness for the repentant Peter, even for even for a Paul, what a nasty piece of work! He didn't get his hands dirty. No, he held other people's coats while they threw rocks at Stephen until he was dead. And Peter, Paul said, "That's good. I approve of that." There was repentance for a Paul, even for a David, who slightly got his best servant killed in battle to cover up his adultery. Even for Paul, even for Peter, even for David, even for you and for me. There's forgiveness. Not based on how good our repentance is, based on how good he is. And lastly, what does Jesus do to the sixth commandment? Ah, This is great. He gives the Holy Spirit. He gives the Holy Spirit. You see, if we are to mend broken relationships, if... Or if we're to to try to avoid them getting broken in the first place, we need more than a step-by-step guide to reconciliation. We need more than just a plan to work through. If we're to amend them, or if we're to keep them from being broken, what do we need? We need love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, And self-control, that's what we need. In other words, we need that fruit of the Spirit, that the Spirit works Christ-like character and heart in us. Jesus gives the Holy Spirit. Yes, we need his practical instructions that we've heard. How do you go about mending broken relationships? But we won't manage to do it. The defensive accusations will rear their heads without that fruit of the Spirit. You see, yet again, the commandments, including the sixth commandment, drive us back to Jesus.